And I think for all of us, you can't, you can't avoid pain, you can't avoid trial, you can't avoid sorrow, and you can't avoid loss. The only thing you can do is figure out how you're going to deal with it. And that, that makes all the difference in someone's life. There are people who lose and they are forever embittered and they will tell you every time you meet them how badly life has treated them or how cruel God was to them. And as a result, they never grow past it. And then there are others who use that loss as a ladder. They use it to climb to a different place and to a new place. And, and it can be agonizingly difficult, but that's the only way I think to make a life of depth and a life that eventually helps others as well. I mean, it made David a better king and therefore made Israel a better people. This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. The mission of the Jewish TV channel is to unite voices from Jewish communities worldwide and reduce the distance between Israel and the diaspora through educational programming and interface dialogue, led by the acronym AIM, fighting anti-Semitism, Israelphobia, and the miseducation of our youth. Since our relaunch in January, we've talked a lot about anti-Semitism on campus, the failings of Jewish education, and the extent technology has made things better or worse. But all of these things rely on one thing, and that's leadership. So in the coming months, we will be talking about leadership much more, and what better way to start than by looking at the golden era of Jewish leadership all the way back to King David. Like my guest today, I've always had a fascination with King David. He's a Renaissance fan of the Bible, a polymath, equally adept at arts and entertainment and psychology, as he is war and strategy, with an arsenal of assets that would probably make him a well-received leader, even in the 21st century. An imperfect, flawed man who is still beloved. One of the most crucial things accomplished was uniting the kingdom and subduing rebellions. And I think it's safe to say we could really use a leader like that right now. So who better to guide us through the wisdom of King David's leadership than another beloved David in our own time, Rabbi David Wolpe. Rabbi Wolpe is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. He's the author of eight books, including the national bestseller, Making Lost Matter, Creating Meaning in Difficult Times. He's been named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek and twice was named among the 50 most influential Angelinos by LA Magazine. He's taught at a number of universities, including UCLA, Hunter College, Pepperdine, and the Jewish Theological Seminary, and has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, Jerusalem Post, among many other newspapers and journals. Rabbi Wolfe currently serves as a senior advisor for diversity for the Maimonides Fund, and was recently named as the inaugural rabbinic fellow for the Anti-Defamation League. His most recent book, David, The Divided Heart, a biography of King David, was a finalist for a National Jewish Book Award and has been optioned for a movie by Warner Brothers. 
Next year, he will be a visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School, and we're so glad to have him with us today. Welcome, Rabbi Wolfie. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. It's great to have you with us. I wanted to to start with a little bit about your background, how your own Jewish identity was formed, and particularly how your father, who was also a rabbi, how his rabbinate was maybe a little different than yours has been. Well, I'll start. um, My father grew up in a more or less secular home and became a rabbi um, through a variety of circumstances, uh, but he grew up um, with his parents uh, and grandparents being still very deeply entwined in Jewish culture. So I think that that was in his generation, the air that people breathed. And when he became a rabbi, it was as part of a generation where, you know, they were, they had figured out with some difficulty how to be Americans, but everybody knew how to be a Jew. Um, It's like my, my grand, my mother's father wasn't particularly religious, but when they needed a tenth and a minion, they would call him because he knew how to pray because every Jew did. I grew up in a different generation where people had to find their way to Judaism as opposed to find their way to America. And so I think the biggest difference in my father's rabbinate and in my own is not that, I mean, we were both conservative rabbis. We were both in large synagogues, but we had different populations. Um, first of all, because uh, the immigration generation had already been absorbed, but also in a contradistinction to that, um, about half my congregation, maybe a little bit more, were Persians. So to the extent that I had immigrants, they were immigrants not from Eastern Europe, but from Iran. Right. And how has that changed your own rabbinic in L.A.? Well, it's changed it a lot because I had to learn an entire Jewish culture that was different from Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish culture. And it's been fascinating and wonderful um, and has exposed me to sort of the varieties of Jewish history because the Jews of Iran, sometimes people call them Sephardic, but they're not really Sephardic. They didn't come from Spain. They've been in Iran for thousands of years. So it's a very deeply rooted and ancient Jewish culture. And uh, I think that it has enabled uh, the rest of the population of my synagogue and indeed of Los Angeles to learn something about the variety of the ways Jews have uh, walked through this world. Yeah, that really speaks to the current situation of Jewish unity and community identity. And, you know, it's great to see more diversity coming through with that. How how would you say identity has really changed specifically from the shtetl to where we are now? I know my father, he often talked about um, the really traditional upbringing. I mean, for his upbringing, the rabbi was the basketball coach. They they did everything. It was music. Everything was under like one roof. And he, I don't think he ever really understood how we had more of what I now consider a more corporate model um, of yes. the Federation on one side and the JCC is sort of a McDonaldization of JCCs. Um, do you think that has created problems for us? Uh, how has that changed or helped or hurt our unity? Well, my, my answer to almost every question 
uh, is that it, you know, there's there's both sides. It's got a it's a curse and a blessing. Um, institutionalization is a really important thing for a community, and other communities are sometimes jealous of the Jewish community that we have all these institutions because we take care of a lot of problems and difficulties through our institutions that other communities feel a little helpless to deal with. At the same time, though, as you say, it creates layers of bureaucracy and different interests and competing groups. And uh, Jewish unity uh, is something, it's an ideal. It's not something that's ever fully achievable or was ever fully achievable. Um, and so I think except in the face of a common enemy where you might have some brief unity, uh, the, the main purpose of, of efforts towards unity is for the Jewish people to stay connected to one another. Not that they won't ever fight, because they will always have fights and difficulties and differences, but we want, to, want people to feel still that they're one part of one great common enterprise. Um, and that's what I think of really as unity. Mm-hmm. And what is the challenge then for leaders to, to make that happen? I mean, it seems like we've, we've gone well, through the, so much change. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Um, first of all, we have gone through such change, and we are continuing to. Uh, and so you almost have whiplash from where we've been and mm-hmm. where we are. And the challenge for leaders is, first of all, to show the common threads. Um, that is exactly what you're doing today, which is to say, look, this is not the first time we face these challenges. Just, just look at King David. He faced them, you know, more than, more than about 3,000 years ago. Uh, and second, it is to remind people to keep their, themselves focused on something more than their immediate um, short-term interest, that as a people we have longer-term interests that are important and that need to be uh, – that need to be tended to because it is very easy to lose your longer sights in the pursuit of what's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. It feels like we're in a state of hyper-diversity sometimes and hyper-individuality, which is good and bad in, in various ways. And with the the drama of the diaspora, and you know, it's the 3,000-year drama, it feels like it's left us with a leaning tower of Babel effect where, yes, there's so much individuality, so many different cultures, and to get them all unified, even on something like anti-Semitism or Israel phobia, it's just it's so much harder than it seems like it needs to be. Does it take catastrophe to finally unify us? Is that really the, the great unifier? <laughs> I mean, it's sad. I know, I know. I'm like, as you're saying it, I mean, I'm laughing and crying at the same time because sometimes that is true. (laughs) So, I mean, what is more unifying than catastrophe? The whole human race would come together if the aliens invaded tomorrow. Um, But, (laughs) but I would, I, I think, I think that it is true when people feel a little bit safer, they tend uh, to feel like these fights won't matter. Um, But, but that's one of the reasons why I think it's it's always good to be a tad uneasy because you should know that um, just like a country, you know, a people can be very fragile and things can change quickly. 
And so this is partly a function of leadership, um, but it's also a function of like just neighborliness and the community reaching out towards each other and understanding that you don't have to agree with someone on everything or see eye to eye about everything in order to value them and want to be part of the same community in the same world. What you said earlier in your question, I think is exactly right. We're in an age of hyper individualization and hyper diversity where everybody begins by telling you as a this or a that. In other words, mm -hmm. I identify myself sort of in opposition to what you might be. And, and while there, again, there are great benefits to individuality and there's a lot of importance to diversity and identity, but it does have the downside of, of making group solidarity a much harder undertaking. I definitely appreciate that. And it's, it's so counter to what I and I think many of our listeners grew up uh, feeling and thinking with basic critical thinking. I mean, I was always taught to look for the Venn diagram to find the middle right. of it, start there and work outward. And now, you know, it's very hard when you're trying to be a leader, especially if you are someone who's trying to be somewhat centered in the middle yep. as, as, a, as a centrist or slightly, you know, left, middle, right, center, um, you know, to, to, you get accused of being weak. You get accused of not being strong enough. And yet my feeling has always been if somebody doesn't keep a light on there, if, if the, I think right. it takes stronger warriors, not less. For those people in the middle, leaders, everything from teachers moderating a classroom or rabbis moderating a congregation or others running a staff, how do they find that balance? And is there anything they can learn from prior Jewish leaders? Well, I'd start by saying that the, that the balance is going to be, by its very nature, different in different um, institutions. Uh, so, you know, there, there are some institutions that are already, that have like, the, the tracks are already laid down, and so you know that there are certain things you have to do or certain ideas that you have to enunciate in order for, um, in order for that institution to continue and to thrive. So I would say if you, if you have an Orthodox synagogue, there are certain prerequisites that aren't prerequisites if you have a conservative or reform synagogue. But once you mm -hmm. know what the basic guardrails are, then you have what you need to do, I think, is, and I've done this and I've tried to do it anyway, with the Ashkenazi and, uh, and Persian populations in my own synagogue, which sometimes have very different patterns and styles of life, is you try to, to start with the things that everybody has in common. One of our great mm -hmm. dilemmas in the modern world is since we don't read the same books and we don't go to the same movies and we don't watch the same TV shows, there are just too many. Um, it's not like, you know, when I was growing up, everybody watched The Late Show with John and Carson or everybody read the latest novel. Not true anymore. Right. But as a result, the, the thing that everybody has in common 
and everybody talks about is politics. And politics is just about the most divisive subject. Right. So if you start with politics, you're going to have a hard time. And therefore, I try very hard to get people to start with their kids, you know, with um, what they like to cook, with things that will let you know about how they take care of their elderly parents, things that will let you know about the other person as a human being before you know about them as a political figure. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I think that that's really important for the Jewish community in general is to communicate about messages that are fundamental human Torah messages before we get to the politics, since the politics tend to be what divide us. I'm very close to people on the right and on the left, and that's because I got to know them as people before I ever asked who they voted for. And I think that's mm -hmm. really important. I agree. I agree. I, I actually really think the arts and sports and leisure is is it fills such an important role. We talked about this yep. pretty extensively with Lana Melman last month um, mm -hmm. in our interview. And I mean, even just even just sitting still watching a baseball game three hours later, you yeah. feel closer to the person. Sports, so, you know, sports we, we are could, tremendous. Yeah, tremendous force. For cultural, for both, by the way, both for cultural unity and also for legitimate outlets of hatred. Like you can hate the other team. That's fine. Nobody gets upset. That, I mean, with rare exceptions, that you hate the other team, um, and they don't take it personally. I grew up in Philadelphia. I'm a Phillies fan. That's just the way it is. And and you know, when the Phillies <laughs> come to town and play the Dodgers, or when the 76ers come to town and play the Lakers where the Eagles come to town, it's like everybody's kids. And and that's a wonderful <laughs> thing. Uh, absolutely. That'd be like OSU in Michigan, where I'm from. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. That's I, right. I you there. Um, so I want to switch gears. You recently you became the 18,000th person to find something called the Jewish Future Pledge. What is that? So the Jewish Future Pledge, which I, I had heard about years ago and had even spoken about and yet, this just tells you how your brain can have blind spots. Yet, it never occurred to me that I should actually take it until someone said to me, I, have you taken the pledge? And I went, oh, my God, I haven't. <laughs> I should do that. I feel bad. I it, haven't taken it either. I think I yeah. want to. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, but I it's a great <laughs> – What I'll tell you what it is. It's actually – it is a promise that of whatever charitable giving you will leave, when you pass away, you will leave at least 50% of that charitable giving to a Jewish cause, a Jewish or Israel-related cause, because there's going to be a tremendous transfer of wealth. Um, and it doesn't yeah. say, you know, take the money that you were going to give to your kids and give it to Israel. No, it's the money that you are going to give to charity, which we hope will be, you know, a considerable amount. Um, make sure that at least 50% of it shows um, that you care about Judaism and the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And so that was the pledge I took. I think that's wonderful. We, we certainly need it. And um, yep. yeah, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of the activists I talked to, we talk about, we have 10, 15, maybe 20 years to really get a grip on 
some of the things that keep us up at night because yep. once we, you know, the silver tsunami, that's the nickname I hear it called, once once that really uh. hits, you know, the, the transfer. Right now we're as bad as anybody thinks it is, and, and there are problems. At least there are enough moderates and people that like Israel in both parties that, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're keeping it together. But um, right. I haven't looked at the, the statistics recently, but in the next 10 to 15 years, as they are replaced with younger generations that we know statistically are more anti-Israel, and that includes, unfortunately, even conservative evangelicals on the Republican Party, where it just plummets the amount of support. And then there will be fewer Jews than Muslim Americans as well. Just a bunch of different things hit around 15 to 20 years plus, not to be completely depressing, but um, Richard Landis just informed us last month that the 2,000-year anniversary of Jesus dying in 2033 is likely to spur some interesting behavior. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it just feels I didn't like, think okay, about that, but yeah, right. I yeah, I haven't either. He's a he's a medievalist and uh, he's an expert on apocalyptic thinking, and he 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 coined the term Pallywood. So, um, you know, all of that put together, just there's an urgency, and I think I feel like a lot of us are on the spectrum somewhere between, oh my God, 1930s Germany panic versus this is way too complicated. I just can't deal with it. And, you know, everything right. in between. And th- and that also makes unity because, you know, you, you can't be, you're not going to be a good leader if you're constantly stressed out. So how does a leader mobilize? How do we motivate, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Well, the first thing I would say is you motivate by understanding that you shouldn't despair. Will there be challenges? Yes, there will be challenges. Will those challenges make it impossible for Jews to survive and to thrive and to sustain themselves? No, I don't believe it will. They will. And and I say that in part because, you know, um, America has so many diverse and different groups that uh, this is both uh, part of our challenge and also part of the great blessing of being Jewish in America. It's not like when we were in Europe and there were Frenchmen and Jews or Germans and Jews or Austrians and Jews. Um, In America, there are lots and lots and lots of different groups. And so the way that we survive in America is by making alliances. Will there be difficulties? Yes. But have we made alliances classically both in this country and elsewhere? You mentioned, for example, conservative evangelicals. It may be that support for Israel will drop. That may well be true. But at least for a while, there's been a very powerful alliance for Israel with the conservative evangelical community. For a long time, and still, I hope, could be revived, there was a very powerful alliance between African-American groups and Jews. So the same sort of thing, alliances alliances shift and change. Uh, And I don't know that the alliance that we have today will have tomorrow, but we have to keep working on it. We have to work with with Asian groups, with Hispanic groups, with any group that we can to show them that actually in America, it's good for everyone when there's more tolerance um, and appreciation of the Jewish community, too. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn to your book now. 
What is it about King David that made him such a good leader? And what can we learn from him that maybe applies to our situation today? Because it seems like he had to unite a lot of very diverse people, too. He did. And, and David, David is a really interesting te- test case because nobody would say David was the nicest guy uh, whoever, you know, whoever lived. Um, and he had opposition. And part of the reason he had opposition is because he wasn't always such a, such a sweetheart. Um, but one of the things that he, first of all, did do, and this is really important and actually goes to something you said earlier, was David was able to listen even to people who were different from him. David, in fact, um, David, although this is not generally recognized or known, the longest single speech by a woman in the Bible is Abigail's speech to David. And not only does David listen to her without interrupting, which is something (laughs) that in the ancient world was as uncommon as in the modern world, but he changes his behavior because of what she says. And so um, David, David knows that he doesn't know everything. That's one of the reasons why David never, unlike other kings, never commits idolatry because he understands that he is less, you know, exalted than God. David, um, when Nathan says to him, you've done something wrong, even though David is king and Nathan is a prophet, and in other cultures, the reaction would be, you know, take off this, this prophet's head, who needs him? David listens to him and repents. So the first quality of a leader that David shows us, which is all too uncommon among our leadership, is his ability to listen to people who disagree with him and to learn from them. Um, yeah. And the second quality I think that's really important that enables people to, is David shows loyalty to his people so that he is able, I mean, with the, with the very, very, very obviously significant exception of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, but David has this band of, <laughs> of sort of warriors around him who are with him from the time he's young. And yeah, and he they admire him and they follow him like Yoav and and even until the end of his life, they protect him and care for him. So there's that. And then the other thing that David does that's really important for a leader is uh, David manages to arrange for his own succession. So Solomon Mm -hmm. takes over from David, whereas a lot of other kings don't do that. And then there's this tremendous fight um, that tears the kingdom apart, which is, by the way, what happened to Solomon. When Solomon dies, the kingdom is torn apart. But when David dies, David manages to give the kingdom to Solomon intact. So those are at least some of the things that uh, are important for leadership. And if it seems abstract, let me just draw one lesson from it. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard um, younger people say about like federation boards or synagogue boards or other, why don't they let any younger people on? Why is it Mm -hmm. all older people? And that's an example of not providing for your own succession. People stay too long. I'm leaving my synagogue this year and my two uh, assistants who have been with me for several years or a married couple, they're taking over, and it was seamless. 
they've been there for a long time. It's time for them. It's time for me to like give the synagogue to someone else. And this is part of the lesson that you learn in leadership if you pay attention, you know, is you're not supposed to be the leader forever. The graveyards are full of indispensable people. Everybody, everybody needs to be replaced. That's so refreshing to hear somebody say that because sometimes you feel like you're whining when you bring it up or or you even get accused of being ageist if you if you suggest right. it. And I mean, I'm Generation X, so I, I feel right. and there have been books written about how we're kind of a unique generation that is fluent in both languages of millennials and boomers. And it, it is. I think mm-hmm. there's a special I think I think each generation has a special unique role, just like kids in a family I, in a lot of I ways. I totally agree. And it's totally hard necessarily agree. to but to recognize what your role is and in each thing, you know, if I made a Jewish pledge of some kind, I would say maybe everybody should give 10 years of real devotion to the problem. And that could be something that doesn't involve donations necessarily, but time or teaching or, or mentoring a kid. And I, I, I got some very interesting questions from young people that are feeling really lost. And in an age of cancel culture, when so much is at risk for young people to stand up and speak out. There's such a wonderful opportunity for older people who are retired and they don't have to worry. Hey, I'm canceled. Who cares? Um, that, mm-hmm. this is a wonderful time for leadership for people over 70 who still have tons of energy. There's, there are many currencies of power that really make a difference. But you seem like a rarity on that. It seems like there aren't a lot of people of the older generation, and you're not that old, by the way. <laughs> but that uh, I, I that that <laughs> that see it that way, and it is it does get frustrating. The young people know the technology; they're great at it. They're bottom up, and they they do movements. They have different language. Yep. There, then other people are wonderful. They have the bureaucracy and the infrastructure yep. that is also helpful too. And everything together would be the ideal. How does a leader get them all in the same room? Um, I mean, it, de- it depends in part on which, again, which organization. But I think the way you do it is by reminding people who are older of what they said when they were younger. You know, mm-hmm. like you, you said the exact same things 30 years ago. You said, when will these people give me a shot? And now you are these people. So you have to give younger people a shot. It's just, it's that simple. And, and, and the other thing that I think you have to do is you have to make sure that they have something to do because everybody fears being useless. So it's sure. much easier to step out of the way. That's why you have things like, you know, boards of governors or the House of Lords. It's like, it's easier to step out of the way if you have some function or if you know that you'll be in an advisory role. But you need, to, you need to both provide for those who are leaving and also make space for those who are coming. Otherwise, the organization stultifies and it can't grow and it won't attract younger people. When I, was, uh, when I used to do many years, 25 years ago, Craig Taubman and I started this service called Friday Night Live. And it was for young professionals. I mean, it was basically for young singles. We called it young professionals, but we meant young singles, and everybody knew that. And we used to get 1,000, 1,500 people in their 20s and 30s 
And that went on for years. And one day we were doing a service and I looked at Craig and I said, uh, do you notice that everybody in this service has gotten older? That's because they've been following <laughs> us. They're our age. They started with mm -hmm. us. I said, it's time for us to turn the service over to the younger generation. And we did. And guess what? The population of the service got younger <laughs> because yeah. that's, and the same thing will happen in Jewish organizations. If you have a younger board, you'll draw a younger group. So when all these 70-year-olds sit around saying, how do we draw the young people? The answer is, have young people do it. Right, right. Yeah, that's one of my favorite verses in the Talmud, that, you know, blessed is the generation that learns from the old, but doubly blessed yeah. is the generation that learns from the young. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, more on David, you know, yes. I'm wondering if, I mean, there's so many, we could spend an hour on any of your books, but you've, you've especially talked a lot in the past about, uh, I'm quoting you here, the measure of human character is our reaction to dark times. No one can mm -hmm. sidestep darkness. It's the throne upon which light sits. And if the soul has not known sadness and struggle, there's no chance of overcoming, no cherishing the dawn. I mean, I could pick almost any, so many different quotes of yours, but That's, I wondered you. if you think, is it necessary for a leader to have baggage and pain in their so background and trauma to be empathetic? It, uh, it's a beautiful yes. and very apt introduction um, to David because that is exactly, Laura, what, what David goes through um, is he, uh, he has very, very difficult times, not only the times that he creates by doing things wrong himself, but also because there's wars against the Philistines, there's, you know, there are terrible internal struggles. He sees his own son rebel against him um, and, uh, and has to put that rebellion down. And in the end, his son is killed, even though it's against his instructions. And, and he really struggles with that darkness. And I think it makes him a stronger and a better leader. And I think for all of us, you can't, you can't avoid pain. You can't avoid trial. You can't avoid sorrow. And you can't avoid loss. The only thing you can do is figure out how you're going to deal with it. And that, that makes all the difference in someone's life. There are people who lose and they are forever embittered. And they will tell you every time you meet them how badly life has treated them or how cruel God was to them. And as a result, they never grow past it. And then there are others who use that loss as a ladder. They use it to climb to a different place and to a new place. And, and it can be agonizingly difficult. But that's the only way, I think, to make a life of depth and a life that eventually helps others as well, I mean, it made David a better king and therefore made Israel a better people. You talk a lot about empathy over ego. Yeah. Not being so reactive, but showing empathy. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I can, especially because of social media. Social media is designed to get us to be reactive. You know, we say things and someone reacts immediately and, and one of the experiences that I've had, and I, I suspect a lot of your listeners have had, is when someone says something angry to me on social media, 
I will first respond unangrily. That will be my first response. And I would say 90% of the time, they, if they answer, then they'll answer without anger. Because people react and then they expect a reaction and back and it escalates. But if you answer mm-hmm. with calm, with, with empathy, with understanding, with something other than challenge, then all of a sudden you're meeting a human being and not just, uh, you know, not, not just a red ball of uh, fury. And, and I think it's true in interpersonal reactions as well. It's just the old wisdom about counting to 10 is still wise um, to not react too quickly and, and to understand that everybody, everybody you know, everybody is, you know, is struggling with stuff. Nobody lives a frictionless life. I know a lot of oh, people absolutely. because of this, because of the synagogue that I'm in, I know a lot of people who are very wealthy, have a great deal of privilege um, in, in almost every way. And yet, do they struggle? Some of them struggle unbelievably, unbelievably. Some of them you wouldn't trade your life for theirs no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I knew a Holocaust survivor who told me the 24-hour rule that he always followed, which was just to wait 24 hours before making a big reaction. And I followed mm. that for a lot of my life. But, you know, now in in the modern world with technology and so, social media and the media, right. see, you, you don't always have 24 hours. You're, it, it's so, in, so instantaneous. We're not filtered and even if you are and do you think that sometimes this is a problem that Israel and the PR issue uh, that Israel struggles with is because maybe we're trying to play by logical rules again and the world is so insane that it you know it, it takes so much misinformation and from an Instagram meme spread six times faster than we can correct yep. the record and, and we're, we're correcting the record very thoughtfully. We're writing five paragraphs where, you know, and, and it's just, it's very hard to compete against that. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I mean, you're right. There's the algorithms are, you know, calibrated to make our life <laughs> more contentious, more difficult, more immediate, more reactive, more, um, more frenzied, and and I think that willpower is not enough. Uh, I really do believe that, first of all, learning to put the phone down for a while, but also trying to to educate yourself um, about the fact that that's what's going on, and maybe in time persuading the social media companies to change the way they capitalize on their business will be an essential social uh, enterprise because if we don't do that, um, I think that the social media, especially enhanced by AI, is poses a genuine danger to the social fabric, mm-hmm. and we've already seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jessica Imami, one of our contributors, she wrote a book about social media and cyber victimization.
when we talk specifically about how Jewish kids are affected, you know, our kids, as bad as it might be for older people, I mean, our kids, this young generation, mm-hmm. what they're dealing yeah. with, it really breaks my heart sometimes. I can't even pretend to imagine what it's like to be a kid today because they get the pressure from so many areas. And we've talked a lot about education here. And I know you and I, uh, a couple weeks ago, talked about uh, Dara Horn's brilliant article that summarized a lot of the things we've been talking about for many months that, you know, they're on the front lines. She was talking about Holocaust education, but we've been on Talking Point talking a lot about just the miseducation in general where we haven't done the greatest job educating our own kids, let alone non-Jewish kids. You're you're Mm -hmm. in the heart of California with all the ethnic studies and everything. I mean, you're in ground zero there. What are your yeah. thoughts on the current current state of education, both Jewish and non-Jewish? Uh, there's so much to say about this. My greatest fear about education is that, that Jews are not, you know, Jewishly literate. That's my greatest fear. Um, but uh, but then there are also a lot of difficulties about what people are learning about Jews to the extent that they learn anything about Jews. Um, and as you said, we talked about you know Dara Dara's brilliant article about Holocaust education. To the extent that they learn about the Holocaust, are they really learning what it is that uh, that the Holocaust was about, or that what Jews went through? Um, and, and to what extent do they make that connection with the people who went through that and the kid who's sitting next to them who is Jewish? Um, this is, a, it's a huge field. Uh, I, I think if you ask most Americans, for example, what percentage of America is Jewish? They would say 50%. Now we know it's 2.4%, right? 2.4% of all of America is Jewish. But the misperception of Jews in the, as a result, partly of the education system um, is just gargantuan. It's gigantic. Uh, and so even though we are such a small group, we have to continually raise our voices against the, the um, sometimes subtle uh, anti-Jewish bias in the education of Jews as um, both uh, just white privileged people and also uh, Jews as uh, this sort of huge, powerful group that controls everything. Um, these play into ancient stereotypes, but they've not gone away. Right, right. And when it comes from the university and even some of the professors, including some Jewish professors sometimes, that poses a really big challenge because I don't think anyone particularly wants to air our dirty laundry, you know, to the whole world. Well, I was going to say Jews have always been been enemies of Jews. Unfortunately, uh, there's a long history. I could could list lots of names of uh, Jews who have caused the Jewish community no end of pain and sorrow. Um, when in 1391 they burned the, the Talmud in Paris, it was after a series of debates between Nachmanides, the great scholar, and Paolo Christiani. Guess who Paolo Christiani was? He was a Jew 
who grew up Jewish and went to yeshiva, and so he knew the Talmud, and then he converted to Christianity and attacked the Talmud for the rest of his life. So, yeah, we, uh, among among other things, in discourse about Israel and discourse about Judaism, Jews are sometimes the most, uh, well, contemptible, the most, the ones who cause the most heartache. As someone who wants to promote unity, how do you deal with that? Do you do you disavow them? Do you call it out? Do you coax them and try to bring them in? Because it doesn't seem to me that that works. Do you use gentle language? You know, what is... Uh, I'm not I, I'm, sure I'm anything... Yeah. I'm not sure anything works. You contradict them and you disagree with them. And I, I try not to write anyone out of the Jewish community um, who uh, mm-hmm. who doesn't disavow Judaism, um, but but it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, you know this was one of the questions that was submitted to me, but it was too complicated, so I'll just paraphrase. But um, mm-hmm. there's a woman who is now very much fighting anti-Semitism. But about ten years ago, she was very actively uh, campaigning against Israel. And I talked to her. Uh, she may even be interviewed anonymously at some point. Mm-hmm. But it was very interesting talking to her because I didn't know what to make of her when I first talked to her. And she's very sincere and she's just broken up inside. I mean, really just feeling tremendous guilt and feels like she caused a lot of harm. What should she do was basically her question. How can she make make up for things? But what I was struck by talking to her and other people is a lot of them are, they act out on that because they're angry at a parent. That was a takeaway I got from some different people that it, it's a rebellion. It, it's a rebellion against parents. And if that was important to their parents in some way, or that wasn't explained, that seems to be something that uh, influenced them. Is there any, any, any parallels with that in, in some of those other examples you mentioned? What I would say is I'm always wary of psychoanalyzing other people's reactions, especially when they're people that I disagree with. Um, So I don't know where it comes from, and it probably varies from person to person. Uh, I would rather deal with what they say than with the motivations that I can't be sure of. Um, But I do know it is certainly true. Look, I've had people come to me and say, you know why I never go to synagogue? Because when I was six, my rabbi said this. And I think to myself, here's a, a system of thousands of years and, and hundreds of thousands of scholars and rabbis. And because one rabbi once said one thing to you that you disagree with, you decided, eh, forget this. So I do know that the reaction of a parent or a teacher or a rabbi or someone can have very profound effects. I just would rather deal with what the effects are than I'm not a psychologist and you need, and sometimes, honestly, I don't even know my own motivations. So what makes me think I can understand someone else's? Sure, sure. It's been interesting because the Jewish Studies Zionist Network, they try to set the record straight because sometimes there are these statements uh, Mm -hmm. a bunch of Jewish Studies scholars will sign that, basically condemn Israel, and so they try to do the opposite, which is great, um, and then, you know, the same with IRA and things. 
it, it's it's very hard when you know, when you're trying to explain this to other people, uh, and know. you know who who we are and and no, I mean you know I I have Christian relatives that I've had to explain this to um, at times, yes. and it, it's it's very hard because they can get one thing out in. At 60 seconds, and it takes us a very much longer than that to explain all the nuance if if they stick around and listen. Yeah, the one thing that I sometimes I, I I'll just make two quick remarks uh, on this. One is I always prefer to attribute something to to ignorance and not to malice. You know, I usually mm-hmm. assume when someone says something really bad about Israel or about Jews, my first assumption is they probably haven't. They probably don't know very much about it. The second part of this is Jews sometimes make an assumption that everybody knows everything about Israel. But I ask Jewish audiences, you know, how much do you know about Kashmir or Nagorno-Karabakh? Because you can go to places in the world where that's all anyone talks about or cares about, and yet it's not even on your radar. So don't assume Mm -hmm. that Jerusalem is automatically on everyone's radar just because for us it is such a crucial you know, and talked about things. It's not necessarily true. Right, right. And, and this, again, maybe is this generational differences, too. You know, there was such a focus of Holocaust education right. for, for so long, right. understandably, that I, I almost feel like, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, it was, you felt guilty, you know. It was just, yeah. There was this obligation energy for sure, but um, as, as Dara pointed out, that did we did we instill the same with with Jewish pride at the same time? Um, yeah, and, it was know, hard. What it more? was hard when the. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please finish. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, I was. No, good. I was just going to say it was hard. Also, when when like that was the overwhelming experience of so many people whom you knew. Because, you know, we were, we were surrounded by people who had just emerged from Eastern Europe. And so mm-hmm. the Holocaust education was really hard not to focus on that when they're right in front of you were people who had literally stepped out of the camps. Um, and now we realize, mm-hmm. though, in some ways what a gift that was because now that such people are gone, it's... Uh, it's hard for people to understand quite what that was, you know, without the the overwhelming first person testimony of lots and lots of people. So, right. As we said at the very beginning, everything is a double edged sword, you know. Maybe there was too much Holocaust yeah. education, but we understand why. And now maybe we're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's just it's very difficult to get this right. Well, and I, I think it's also a mindset. Um, you know, the some some call it the shtetl mentality of. Well, I feel like we have a visibility paradox sometimes in Judaism, where on one hand we're extroverts and we want lots of attention for certain things, and on another end we can be introverts and maybe hide our Jewish identities at times when it's convenient. And that much has been said about that we're not comfortable with basically the strong Maccabees, the strong Maccabees right. archetype in, in Israel. And, and there's a, that some people are more comfortable with the shtetl mentality. And I wonder, is it is it necessary for 40 years in the desert to have a rebirth and a relaunch of Judaism in a mindset without all the, the trauma from the Holocaust? Like, like we had to I, get beyond the trauma of slavery. I do think 
that that the way that young people are going to practice Judaism will be in some ways different and more innovative. I think there is a turn back to practices like meditation, spirituality, and neo-Hasidism, um, which are which are not about the Holocaust. They're about reclaiming the rich spiritual tradition of Judaism. And and there's a turn away from institutionalization. So fewer and fewer people are drawn to like the walls and pews of a synagogue. They want to be outdoors. They want to be um, in nature. And so, yeah, I think things will change and things will be rediscovered. Uh, and that's part of that's part of the dynamic of Jewish history. It's happened before and it will happen again. I think you and I agree on Tikkun Olam. I've heard you speak about it before, and, and that it's that it's a good thing, but that it's been grossly misinterpreted. So yes. you know, there's I, there's a common analogy about the cobbler who makes shoes for everybody in town, while his own uh, children go go barefoot. Exactly. Yeah. What is it that is causing this chronic cobbler syndrome in a lot of Jewish American organizations? And how do we undo that? um, I I don't know that I know the exact answer, but I think part of it is because you get a lot of social capital from the non-Jewish world for saying what Judaism is really about is saving the whales. And believe me, I have nothing against saving whales. I'm all for saving whales. But that actually is not the burden of the Jewish tradition. so, I, but I think that to the non-Jewish world and to Jews that aren't that involved in the Jewish world, this seems like, oh my God, look at this, Judaism is exactly aligned with the political agenda of the people in the surrounding community whose esteem I want. So I think that that's a very big mm-hmm. uh, part of this. I really do. Can we get deeper on the Sure. Tikkun olam means repairing the world, repairing the world. And um, it's often used now for any good thing that someone does and says that that's what Judaism is about. It's about tikkun olam. Originally, it was actually about how mitzvot, how doing God's commandments help repair either God's broken world or the breaches in God's self, if you're mystically inclined. Um, but tikkun olam was as much putting on tefillin in the morning as it was giving tzedakah, giving charity. It was about doing mitzvot of all kinds. And now it has become essentially uh, a politically liberal rallying cry for, um, for social welfare programs and environmental activism. And while those things may have some interaction with the idea of tikkun olam, they surely are not its essence. What prayer is it actually from? Because my understanding is it's it's actually a very minor line of a prayer. Well, it's in the Aleinu. It's in the Aleinu, with tikkun olam b'machut shaddai, to to fix the world under God's kingdom. And tikkun olam is in the Mishnah. It's an ancient term, but it meant basically to do mitzvot. It didn't mean, you know, as I said, to heal the bay. Is it in the main part of the Elenu or more like the, the extra paragraphs below the main part? Uh, well, they're all, right, the, the second part of the Elenu, but, um, but 
but there's not, I don't know the Elaine, when we talk about the main part, what we generally mean is the part that people sing out loud. Um, right. Which I don't know if I don't know if the tradition would necessarily consider that more main, you know, than any other part of the Elenu. But uh, but that's that's neither here nor there. Can we talk about the boundary between healthy assimilation and toxic assimilation? that eats itself, very similar to what we were talking about earlier. But, you know, in each new generation, I know historically Russian and German Jews that arrived in America were very different. Their levels of assimilation, their religion, their outward demonstrations of Judaism. And, you know, it feels like sometimes with the fight against anti-Semitism, the Orthodox sometimes are getting the brunt of it and not getting enough representation and not defended enough. Um, what do you think of, of that and, and just the assimilation in general? Um, I think that America has a really powerful effect of flattening cultures. Um, and and it's hard to be countercultural uh, in America without walling yourself off. Uh, and so... The early generations from Eastern Europe, they tried very hard to uh, to become American. That's why, like when my father was at the seminary, they would not teach any classes in Yiddish because Yiddish was the language of the old country. They wanted everyone to learn English. Um, and and I think we're just started in the past, I don't know how many decades, to recognize that you can be an American and 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 practice and revel in and enjoy and celebrate your culture as a whatever you are. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but that's not an easy lesson always to learn. And the, no. and Jews tend to, and Jews tend to do one or the other. That is either they will like in Williamsburg, wall themselves off from all of American culture, or they will embrace it so much that Jewish culture starts to disappear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of the Pittsburgh platform, which is something I only recently even learned about, um, and well, how that affected American Jewish uh, uh, American Jewish identity and trends in Jewish education later? It seems um, like, if, if yeah, go ahead. No, 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 finish. Well, m- my understanding and. and please uh, correct what I have wrong because I'm sure I have, I I don't have it all, but they had a choice to decree that Jews are no longer a nation, but a religious community. And that had, it seems that had some far reaching effects. Consequently, you know, we find ourselves today outside of diversity, equity, inclusion protections, which is very, very frustrating. I don't think, most of us were taught how all of this went together with the evolution. And I don't ask it to be divisive on any level, but to just to understand the evolution. And I think our friends in Israel also maybe don't understand why American Jews are just so different. And what happened in 1885 had a lot of impact. And I think it's, it's helpful for people to understand the impact. Um, well, it, it was, I mean, it's hard to say chicken and egg whether the Pittsburgh platform was a result of the impact that was already there or it was the driving impetus. Um, but I would say uh, that the Pittsburgh platform and also what the famous Trafe banquet where they had uh, a banquet where they served non-kosher 
stuff for the reform movement, which is one of the things that drove the conservative movement to become clearly distinct from the reform movement, were a way of saying we, we reject the, many of the traditional forms and ideas of, the, of Judaism as it was practiced in, uh, in Eastern Europe by our ancestors. And we're in a new world, and it was part of the declaration of what's called prophetic Judaism. That Judaism was about basically what we, we what we might call today social justice, um, and uh, and this was almost I, I mean it was not only about internal developments in Judaism but it was also part of what was going on in America at the time. Other religious movements were making the same sorts of declarations, and what you had in America was a. Uh, you know, an opportunity for Jews to do exactly what you said before, which was to recreate themselves. And some of them wanted to get rid of the old forms that embarrassed them and made them feel uncomfortable. And they didn't want to wear tefillin. And they wanted to be able to eat at the same restaurants as their Gentile neighbors, because here was a place finally where they were not discriminated against and put on behind walls. Now, there was some discrimination in America. I don't want to make it... Uh, I don't want to make it too um, too halcyon, like everything was was perfect. But even with that, it did make it did make uh, the opportunity available to Jews to be no different from the people around them. And a lot of Jews wanted that very, very much after you know thousands of years of feeling like people hate us because we're different. Mm-hmm. And yet the irony is that now we're having this issue with the ethnic studies curriculums and the diversity, equity, inclusion, which sounds great in theory, but seems to other Jews as the white colonial class. And I think a lot of people are scratching their heads like, how did we get here? Well, I mean, look, I, I think you could have, I mean, I can speak about it a little bit, but you should have someone on who has a better, like, sociological grasp of the way in which the curriculum and the ideology developed, but it's not just about the Jews. Um, this is uh, an ideology, of, especially of the far left, that sees Jews as part of the dominant white majority, um, even though anybody who has any familiarity with or understanding of the Jewish community knows that all of those terms don't apply to a people that, after all, lost a third of its people in a genocide in the lifetime of many who are walking around still on the earth. So mm -hmm. this is just part of the part of the painful paradox of the time we're in. Um, but can't. But but I don't know what King David would say about it. So I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> well, I, I was raised in a conservative synagogue in Ohio. And, you know, it's, it's been really, as America has gotten increasingly more polarized, it seems like conservative Judaism is just really fading away. Where do you think it will be in 50 or 100 years? Is conservative Judaism going to be able to survive? Or are we going to find ourselves in very distinct polarization? I'm, I'm always an optimist. So I assume we're going to be able to survive. I don't know exactly how, um, but we will see. We will see. I mean, uh, you know, it's, 
uh, 100 years ago, nobody thought orthodoxy would survive. Now nobody thinks conservative will survive. Um, one of the things that I have discovered is that the predictions of the future are almost always wrong, and people don't have a nearly comprehensive enough view of the world to be able to predict. I think we're undergoing some kind of very powerful transformation. What exactly will happen, though, I do not know. All I know is that it's my task not to predict the future, but to live as fully, faithfully, and hopefully in the present as I can. Yeah, yeah. Well, along those lines, I had another audience question for you. There are a lot of people that feel that they've been let down by their organizations, that there hasn't been enough advocacy. Um, What do you think uh, these organizations can do? And in particular, with your new position with the Anti-Defamation Link, what will your role be and how will you be able to help guide them? Um, My role at the Anti-Defamation League is going to be to try to help them make their messages more Jewish, to try to add a Jewish spin the messages to root it in Jewish sources so that the anti-hate messages that are uh, offered will have, well, people will understand that such messages come from and have a deep connection to the Jewish tradition. They're not just something that we're saying off the cuff or from today. And, you know, you've used technology and social media very effectively to reach more people, both Jewish and non-Jewish. Do you think more rabbis and leaders should do that? I think if you want to reach people, you have to do it through whatever tools will enable you to do so. And certainly for me, um, it has been a very effective way of reaching people that otherwise I would never be able to speak to or... um, even know the existence of. I mean, I get messages from all over the world through Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, and I think that that's a beautiful thing. No, oh, absolutely. I love your posts. <laughs> they're wonderful. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, they're, they're really great. You know, a lot of people, and this is, I think, one of, one of the themes of your, your other books that people really, really love. And I hear this a lot privately. A lot of our best and brightest Jewish leaders are really tired. There's a lot of firebrands that, I don't want to say they're burnt out, but they're tired. You know, they they take a lot of uh, shellacking from many directions, and and it's hard. What encouragement, what words of advice can you give them on the perseverance angle? Because you've written so much about that that is so inspiring. Um, What can you say specifically to our leaders who fight anti-Semitism and, you know, don't always feel like they're moving the needle much. To leaders of, I would say the same thing that I say to teachers. You know, when you're a teacher, you, there's this kid who never pays attention to anything you say, who never seems to notice what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, one day, 20 years later, that kid will come up to you and say, you know, I never forgot when you said this. You don't even remember that you said (laughs) it, but the kid never forgot. And you don't know what impact you're having. You can never know. It, can, it isn't measured in our lifetime necessarily. But, you know, Herzl died before he saw the realization of the state, even though he hoped that it would one day be realized. So it's the same thing with us. We just have to keep trying and keep plugging away and doing our best and, and hope that, in fact, in time, our efforts will bear fruit. And 
and you have to have a certain amount of faith and a certain amount of hope. Uh, so, yeah, it's true. You don't always get to see all the rewards that you would like to be able to see in your own lifetime. But, uh, but sooner or later, sooner or later. What would you like to see, just in our call to action, what would you like to see every Jew do in the next year or 10 years, especially inspiring personal leaderships? Hmm. I'd like to see them do the hardest thing, which is show up. That is to show up in a synagogue, to show up at a rally, to show up, you know, in places where Jews are needed, to show up when Israel is attacked and there are, you know, people in the community who are, um, who are gathering together in support of Israel. In other words, don't be afraid to be an identified Jew in a public space so that other people can see that we're proud of who we are. Also, by the way, I'd like yeah. them to read a Jewish book, but that's, <laughs> that's yeah. another. Subscribe <laughs> to a Jewish magazine. Learn, learn Jewish things. And finally, travel to Israel. Don't take your fifth trip to Italy. Go to Israel. It's a remarkable <laughs> place and a wonderful place to visit. You know, I'd like to see that too. Yeah. Okay. And, um, do you have time for our lightning round real quick? and then Sure. Absolutely. Um, Go ahead. Okay. Um, Why are you proud to be a Jew? Because it is the tradition of Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ruth, Deborah, um, Naomi, and it is the oldest continuous tradition in the world for teaching people how to grow their souls. Who are your Jewish role models? Um, My greatest role model was my father. I was very, very lucky to be my father's son. What concerns you most about the present situation in relation to the Jewish people? Uh, that Jews don't... I mean, my greatest concern is not with people outside the Jewish world, although I have a lot of concerns about that. My greatest concern is that Jews don't understand, acknowledge, and stand up for who they are. Yes. What makes you mad? Oh, you mean other than when someone cuts me off in traffic? Or uh, what makes me <laughs> mad about about Jews is when people make confident statements about the Jewish tradition that are wrong just because they don't bother to to actually learn what what the tradition is about. Um, and they think it's simple and easy. It's just whatever they feel must be what the tradition says. But I don't get mad very easily. So I would say that gets me annoyed. <laughs> it gets me mad. <laughs> For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? That even though I didn't always meet this standard, for me, the single most important thing is that people be kind. And lastly, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? Are you hopeful? I'm always hopeful. It's constitutional with me um, because, first of all, because I believe in God. So it's hard to believe in God and not be hopeful because, after all, there's a greater, there's something that superintends this world that is greater than us. Um, but also, I'm really bad at being depressed. 
I know that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but I really am. It's like even when I get upset and depressed, it's almost like I take a, a, a dive into the Dead Sea. Somehow I always void <laughs> to the surface, you know. And so, um, and so, if you want, if you want gloom and depression, I'm not your guy. I just, I, I don't do it very well. So that's good. <laughs> I, I always think things are going to be okay. Um, as my daughter sometimes, you know, my daughter will sometimes say to me, you know, Dad, it's really infuriating that you always think things are going to be okay. But I'm really glad that you always think things are going to be okay. <laughs> It, it's a good problem to have, especially these days. And, um, and, I, right. and I think it's, it's contagious, too. Well, Rabbi Wolfie, we want to wish you all the best of luck in your new endeavors post-retirement. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I think you inspired a lot of people, including myself. It was a great joy talking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for taking the time. It's been an honor. Thank you for all the wonderful things you do for the Jewish community, and may all of it come back to you tenfold. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we'll continue our Jewish leadership series with Pastor Dumasani Washington and discuss Black and Jewish relations, Zionism and the Black Church, and why he feels standing with Israel will be a defining issue for Christians of color in the 21st century. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV Channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.